Welcome to Show Cause, the official podcast of the University of Memphis School of Law. I'm Ryan Jones, the Director of Communications at the Law School, and I'll be your host for this podcast as we attempt to examine and explain some of the legal and cultural issues at play in the world today. Loving, more caring. We are who we are. If you're gay, you're gay. If you're straight, you're straight. And you should be allowed to be, you know, how, how you are and who you are. If I hadn't have been a girl, I'd have been a drag queen. I'm pretty sure that would be true because I love all that God and that flamboyant stuff, colors, and, you know, just getting out and doing your thing. I've always been proud of my gay following, and I think they all care about me because I care about them. That was Tennessee's most beloved daughter, Dolly Parton, showing her love and support for the LGBTQ and drag queen communities. And as hard as it is to imagine anyone from Tennessee disagreeing with our state's patron saint, it's clear that those sentiments might run counter to many of those in the Tennessee political arena these days. Earlier this month, a federal judge found that Tennessee's law aimed at restricting drag shows was unconstitutional. The law, called the Adult Entertainment Act, was one of the first aimed at curbing drag performances in front of children and had been in legal battles for months prior to the ruling. Judge Tommy Parker of the Federal District Court here in Memphis ruled that the law was overly broad and violated the First Amendment. It was a huge victory for LGBTQ rights supporters on the verge of Pride Week festivities. And while it's almost certain to be appealed, the initial victory was seen as vitally important in the ongoing drag show battles across the country. Today, we examine the history and evolution of Tennessee's Adult Entertainment Act, up to the recent ruling and what might happen next. We're joined by Memphis Law's own Professor Regina Hillman, who has a successful history with LGBTQ-related issues as part of the Obergefell legal team that successfully argued before the U.S. Supreme Court for marriage equality. Professor Hillman and I cover a wide array of LGBTQ-related topics, from the ripple effects from legislation like the Adult Entertainment Act and how it plays out across our culture, as well as the history of the LGBTQ community's fight against various laws throughout the country over the past few decades. We also delve into the larger legal and cultural issues at the heart of many of these cases and ways that education has had an impact on America's viewpoints surrounding them. I hope you find the conversation as interesting as I did. Enjoy the show. This is Show Cause. All right. Thanks for joining us today. I'm excited to have a return guest with us and Professor Regina Hillman from Memphis Law. Um, always fun to talk with you. I was excited uh, when the opportunity came up to uh, have you back on and talk about today's topic. So thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to it and I appreciate I appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Um, so we're going to kind of delve into um, a timely news item here. It's focused about the Adult Entertainment Act, which was uh, a law that was uh, uh, signed here in Tennessee by Governor Lee um, several months ago. And the gist of it, from what I understand, was it ex- it expanded the definition of adult cabaret in part by adding male and female impersonators uh, from performing in public spaces or so- – where children could witness them if the performance was deemed harmful to minors. Um, So I think that's in a nutshell, kind of the, the gist of what the aim was for it. And it, it uh, has gone through uh, an interesting progression after governor Lee signed it into law. Uh, There was a federal judge here in Memphis that uh, judge Tommy Parker issued a temporary injunction on it in March. Um, And then I believe it was at the, time of this recording uh, about a week ago, came back, Judge Parker um, uh, ruled against the act and that it could not be enforced here in Shelby County. And there's a couple of interesting parts that I wanted to start with you about in that the language that he that was put into the law from the legislators seemed really vague to me. Um, You know, (laughs) when you're when you're like, how is who is determining what's harm, harmful to minors. And that just seems really broad. And um, what, uh, you know, who is, who's supposed to make that decision or in the legislator's eyes who, who passed this into law, you know, who is, who is going to make that decision and why is that dangerous? And it also seems to touch on wh- why judge Parker uh, initially called this overly broad. So if you can start there, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, who's supposed to make those decisions 
And why was that new language important to to the situation? Well, I think you hit on it right right from your very first question about being, um, what does that mean? What being a vague statute? So harmful to minors, they um, cite to a statute, a Tennessee statute that describes harm to minors. But what what um, this actually, um, when you think about the the point of enacting this law or amending what the language was for the Adult Entertainment Act, it it actually added in um, male and female impersonators and really a direct a direct kind of um, pointed uh, method of of reaching the the drag community and right. so and it, and it doesn't say drag anywhere in there right it that's not just yeah correct yeah the word drag is not mentioned at all in the suit um what they what what it actually did is it it uses adult cabaret entertainment and then adds uh, male and female impersonators to um, uh, what would be defined as a um, adult cabaret performer. And so the band that they that they have is both on public property and in any location where it can be viewed by a minor. So the problem with that 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 was identified even before um, Governor Lee signed the bill was, well, that's pretty much everywhere where a minor could be. And so it was raised um, before it passed that this was an over, it was vague and overbroad. So um, it, it both went, it both would impact constitutionally protected speech as well as if they were trying to prevent obscene speech, which is also, as we know, um, can be included with actions, not just words. So um, another thing that came about when it when it got to to Judge Parker is uh, is how it only became applicable here in Shelby County or that's what the, that's the root of the lawsuit. So yeah. I'm I'm, cu I'm curious about how can you walk me through the beginnings of I guess of the lawsuit and why sure. ultimately spoiler alert for listeners okay. I guess um, the Judge Parker's ruling uh, only only affects the the enforcement here in Shelby County or I guess lack of enforcement would be uh, a correct better term. correct and so so, so he, who brought the case and how did that how does that ruling come about. Sure. So Friends of George's is a local um, organization that um, does fundraising for LGBTQ events and they put on mm -hmm. theater productions. And so um, before the law actually went into effect, it was due to go into effect April 1st. Um, they brought a lawsuit re um, requesting the court to um, find, to give it a, a decision on the constitutionality of it and also to temporarily enjoined its enforcement um, during the pendency of the trial that they were um, that they would be conducting. And so what what happened in the original complaint is they they sued the governor, Governor Lee and um, Scarmetti, who is the state attorney general. Mm -hmm. So the initial um, the initial restraining order impacted the state of Tennessee. Um, and so what happened in the meantime is that the complaint got amended because this is a criminal statute, has criminal penalties, and the governor and the attorney general would have uh, immunity they, mm -hmm. from, from lawsuits. So what they did was they let um, both the governor and the attorney general out of the lawsuit, and the law, the defendant became solely Steve Mulroy, a former colleague of here, mm -hmm. well, and, and because he would have enforcement, the ability to enforce the action. As and the local so, DA. That's correct. And right. so what what could have happened to maintain across the state and what some states challenging their bans have done is to sued all to sue all of the um, county attorney generals that would be um, enforcing the act. But since Steve Mulroy was the only one named, then his jurisdiction was only for Shelby County. Okay. But Judge Parker, but Judge Parker did find that the the statute was unconstitutional which would apply statewide. So right. uh, if there was an action brought in another county, I'm sure that it would be handled uh, you know, fairly fairly quickly in that a federal judge has found that the 
statute is unconstitutional. So that's where we've been seeing some split hairs right. um, where I think um, Scarmetti, which is it's interesting, it's interesting because what the state attorney general said was, you know, even though there's it's been found unconstitutional, it's still in effect for all counties except for Shelby County. Right, which really, right. Really, is kind of flawed when you think about if a, if a if a statute's unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional. Right. It's weird. It's almost like he's saying, like, we know this is wrong, but until somebody challenges it on it, we're just going to go ahead and keep doing it. Correct. Correct. And so there were I mean, the timing of it was really fantastic. I'm, the the opinion didn't come out till close to midnight on right. the second, and the third was the Pride event here in mm-hmm. Memphis. So mm-hmm. it was the big pride parade and festival. Um, and Franklin also had theirs the same day. So it had a great impact on Shelby County, of course. Mm-hmm. It was quite quite a, a turnout and it really buoyed um everyone's spirits. There were over the, the estimate for the for the festivals between 50 and 60,000, and over five thousand people participated in the parade. So it was quite wow. quite a day. Including including um, D. A. Mulroy, who was in the mm-hmm. front of mine for the mm-hmm. parade, which was pretty. I amazing. mean, and I'm I'm assuming organizers here in Memphis and in Franklin were just waiting on the opinion because if it goes the other direction, then those festivities are at risk, correct? And the participants in them are at risk. Well, what what they had done in um, Shelby County. Vanessa, uh, Vanessa, who is, she's mentioned throughout the opinion. She testified mm-hmm. for Friends of Georgia. She is on the um, board for mm-hmm. Friends of Georgia's, but she, Vanessa Rodley is her name. And she's also, though, the president of Mid-South Pride. So mm-hmm. she was involved with two different hats that she was wearing. And she did an outstanding job of really organizing the um, festival to be as in line if there was not an injunction that came out for the performers so right. that they were, um, you know, she had several different kind of rules. Mm-hmm. Most performers don't disrobe much, but if they do, it's oh, still, right, right, they right. have a, another fabulous outfit underneath the fabulous outfit that they right. have. But she didn't, um, I think that they limited if they could even take anything off. They weren't accepting tips um, by hand. So they had buckets. I mean, all different kind of a, um, precautions just in case, but it it really was a, a great thing. Now Franklin's Franklin Pride um, ended up not having drag performers, right. which I think they we quite regretted, especially yeah. in light of the decision. But they made a deal with the city. There was a lot of you know problems that they encountered. Right. There. Um. I think you t- correct me if I'm wrong here. An interesting piece that I keep thinking about when I read about this is that it. The law itself seems to misunderstand or maybe misrepresent the the di- like the difference between a drag show and a burlesque show, and it feels like the legislation, the legislators, and the legislation itself talks about a drag show as if it's a burlesque show. Is am I right in that, or, or am I misreading that? Well, according to the definitions of that, they um, amended the, the statute to say they they include male and female impersonators with topless dancers, go-go dancers, exotic dancers, um, strippers, and then they use or similar entertainment. Ah, so just really so, broad term. Exactly. So it really that's part of the um, the broad uh, the broad nature of the statute because. Um, a male or female impersonator, I, I think the judge actually used yeah. a great example of the opinion of Elvis. So right, if you had right. an Elvis impersonator that was a man, and we all know that Elvis had unique moves that right, at the right. time were considered obscene, right? Mm-hmm. So back in, in Elvis's day, there were plenty of parents that wouldn't want their children near a, a performance of Elvis Presley. But if a female dressed up like Elvis and did the exact same thing, then that would fall under the statute. So mm-hmm. it really did. It really does highlight what so many of the problems were with this statute. Of course. Um, and, and even when um, you try to think about what is yeah, they use language from the Miller test, um, which has to do with um, obscenity and uh, 
matters, behavior in a prurient um, manner, prurient nature, Mm -hmm. which means it's appealing to like base sexual desires. And that really misunderstands drag Mm -hmm. right right off the the bat. And and I think there were also examples raised in, in the litigation that had to do with um, you know, this idea of showing skin and disrobing, and really that's almost anti-drag to me. That's where I was getting, that's what I was getting at. Yeah. There's a difference between someone dressed in drag and performing versus and, like what you're, what you're describing. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that I, I think about things like um, Hooters or yeah. the Titans cheerleaders or mm-hmm. the beach where mm-hmm. you would see much more, um, skin so to speak than you right. would at, at a drag show so right. um although i think that i think another real misunderstanding that that you can see throughout and in the testimony from folks that were again opposed to um drag is that they don't really understand necessarily the the levels so i think about a comedian you could have a comedian that could tell jokes in a kid-friendly audience um, maybe knock knock jokes or you know kind of silly ones that you see on popsicle sticks mm-hmm. but but in a private um, club that is an adult only audience it could have a wholly different approach and there could mm-hmm. be you know a, a lot um, you know more of a sexual nature or um, you know using different language and I think that that's the one of the things that's very misunderstood you know these the the drag story hours I think brought some of this into the the light of of folks that um because there was a there has been a you know where drag queens will go to public libraries by invitation and it's a where they read children's books to mm-hmm. children so there is no performance right. so to speak and there is nothing that would be considered obscene in any way. Um, it's it's audience, you know, so it's almost like gearing something to a specific audience. So mm-hmm. like a G movie versus a PG movie versus right. an R movie. And so I think that that was um, another kind of misunderstanding when you when they put this in with the whole category of, you know, adult cabaret performers. Mm-hmm. I'm going to come back to this to this topic because okay. I think that it it ties into a larger uh, a larger issue we're seeing play out in other states as well. But before we move away from the Tennessee part, I wanted to go into a little bit more about if, if our audience doesn't know the reasons why judge Parker um, ruled against this. And that a lot of them had to do with like you, you've touched on, you know, f- free speech stuff and, but he cited several reasons in addition to its overbroad nature about first amendment protections um so so what what were some of those um and and after you talk a little bit about what those were i have some questions about what uh what might be addressed on an appeal so just to plant that seed in your mind too sure so um in general the first amendment prevents the government from making a law that abridges the freedom of speech and the Supreme Court has interpreted speech to include expressive conduct. Mm-hmm. So, so what Judge Parker was looking at is whether or not the act um, was it that, that to determine what standard of review, meaning when you look at when you look at um, this law, do we give it uh, a higher about does it have to pass a higher uh, hurdle to be found constitutional or lower or middle? And so in order to do that, to determine the standard of review, the judge looked at, is this content-based um, restriction? Um, and looked at both the, the text um, of, of the statute and then also looked at whether it was viewpoint-based regulation. And so what happened is they the First Amendment means that the government can't has no power to restrict expression because of its message or its ideas or its subject matter or its content. And so when the court was evaluating whether or not um, the the act was content-based, it looked at what what was it directed towards? What was it um, content-based regulation? Was it viewpoint-based? And and if so, then it would raise um, it would raise the standard of review to what we call strict scrutiny. 
And so what the court found was that it was um, viewpoint-based discrimination um, because it was directed at people who wish to impersonate a gender that was different from the one that they were born with, since okay. it's talking about, you know, male and female impersonate. Right. And, and so it regulated not the operator of the business, but the actual performer themselves. And then the lack of having any sort of um, intent requirement, um, it looked for a statute that would regulate speech with criminal sanctions concerned the court. And then, of course, the breadth of it, which we talked about, the, the lack of any kind of, you know, affirmative defenses. And so they mm -hmm. looked at the legislative history. The court went and looked at the history of the of the um, act and then discussed um, where um, the where the evaluation would land and, and they determined that it would be strict scrutiny, the highest level, because it restricted speech based on content. And so when you have um, when you have a, a law that is concerned with both who is who is the message, the person relating the message and what the message is, then it would qualify for strict scrutiny. And that means that it is presumptively unconstitutional. Okay. So what that means is that if you are if you've got a law that's content based, it targets speech that's based on the communicative content. And so the burden then becomes on the state to show that it's narrowly tailored to serve compelling state interests. And that's where the court um, went and did its evaluation about whether it was narrowly tailored, whether it had a compelling, whether there was a compelling state interest. And, and it did find that protecting, you know, the, the, the purpose of the statute, according to the state, is that it was to protect children. Right. Which is which is a separate issue, really. But yeah, that's a whole yeah. other thing. Yeah, and so the, the court did find that a state in, indeed does have, um, you know, a compelling interest in protecting children, but that this law was not narrowly tailored to accomplish that. That it was overbroad and and both overbroad and vague, which qualified, um, which made them, which made the court declare that it was unconstitutional and that it could provide a remedy of both de a declaratory judgment that the that the statute was unconstitutional um restriction on speech and then also to provide injunctive relief interesting i think that uh, there are some points in there that i think are really interesting and that you've expanded upon i have a better understanding of it it also it also makes me, maybe you can alleviate this concern. So a lot of what you touched on makes total sense, but I guess, and maybe this is, maybe this is the way that systems intended to work overall, but it, oh, it, all of that laid out makes me uh, think that the state on appeal, like has a roadmap to success now. Like they've been told, this is why this didn't work this time. And so if if the legislators pass another bill, they have the parameters now to to make it succeed. Am I I'm I'm a little bit ignorant of how all of that works in some regard, but is is that a concern for um for people going forward? Well, I think that one of the things that the court found that was particularly helpful um was that they looked at the the legislative intent, the intent mm -hmm. behind what was the purpose? Why did the why did the the government pass? the uh, the act and what they did was they found that not just that it was content based and viewpoint based but they found that there was an impermissible purpose from the legislative history and from the text so they found that um th that the intent behind it was to regulate um drag that it was an right, impermissible right. purpose that they engaged in and so I think that that um, the the point was that this was an enacted specifically for. So even though it didn't include drag show, mm -hmm. the legislative history showed that it was, um, you know, the it was the bill was introduced to uh, address drag mm -hmm. and to prevent it, and that the it was viewpoint and content based 
specific to um, to prevent the expression of um, this particular community. And in 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 the legislators' view, ostensibly through the lens of protecting children from harm, right? Yes, yes. Which really concerned you know one of the interesting things about um, this. Well, not even just this bill, but there were several anti-LGBT bills introduced this legislative session, as they yes. are in every year, but particularly bad this year. Um, and and the, one of the one of the ideas that flows throughout is this protecting the children, right? And and so, um, I, I just I have concern because the the idea of protecting the children the state making that determination as opposed to a parents determining what their child right. should right. not be exposed to so for example like a drag story hour at a, a library no one's no one is required to attend a drag story hour and children that attend are brought there with their parents with their parents consent obviously right you're there and i think the same when you think about a a pride festival so this last saturday i saw multiple i mean so many families it's it's amazing to me um because of the years that i've been around and right. uh, you know i i remember seeing a a pride parade on poplar um Golly, years and years ago, it was very short. I was in a restaurant peeking out the window and there was no, you know, there was no families. There right. was barely anybody there other than the parade participants. And so, you know, at these at these pride parades and festivals, a lot of parents find it very important that they're that they bring their children because they want them to grow up in a world where, you know, the child is going to have um an understanding that they can be whoever they are and that they understand that other people are different as well. And so really as a, you know, a life, uh, a part of their, their life and, and their opportunity to, to see the diversity in, in our world. I, uh, I mean, yeah, I've seen the evolution of it and it's definitely, it's, well, it's the, especially here locally, like you said, it's become more of a, of a, a family centric, a family attended uh, type of event. I don't know that the event itself has changed, but I think people's views on coming to the event and what they get out of it and what they want to see as a, a family has grown. Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember last year, I mean, we had elections. There were politicians that rode yeah. in the parade. It, it's, it's been such a, a really wonderful experience as we've seen, you know, with marriage equality, we've, mm -hmm. we've had marriage equality since 2015. So we're coming up on eight years and and uh, public opinion has has changed so dramatically. I've, I've read recently, I know it has been in the 80s, but it's reaching up into 90 percent um, of acceptance of of American citizens in general and, and even desire for equality in the workplace, et cetera. So there's been a wonderful change. And so this is, I think, part of a backlash to that. And and, you yeah. know. We've seen it historically. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Anita Bryant in the 70s and 80s, you know, the Save the Children, mm -hmm. the Save the Children work that she did and really painting, painting the LGBT community as something that's dangerous that children need protection from. Right, right, right. Um, that leads me into kind of the a larger kind of nationally speaking, uh, a, a larger movement and like you're saying, like pain, misrepresentation of a of a subset of society is is dangerous. So we're seeing a lot of bills like this and acts like this enacted or attempt to be enacted across the country. Um, so whether or not uh, they have legal limitations, I feel like they these types of bills can have big ripple effects. I think you already touched on them a little bit about the the celebration in Franklin um, mm -hmm. was curtailed just out of uh, out of out of fear about what might happen or, or or the preemptive work that they did with the the local authorities there just to I guess err on the <laughs> side, side of caution. So, right. uh, what are some of the other ripple effects that 
either we've seen or that you're worried we might see um, from bills like this across the nation? Well, I think it's more, it's, it's a larger picture. This is a piece of a, a much larger um, nationwide kind of backlash among mm -hmm. conservatives for the rights, it, it, LGBT people in general, but really specifically a targeting of transgender people because yes. we're seeing this spread to medical care, not just drag in public, but medical care, um, having LGBT people um, see themselves reflected in school library books and school curriculum. Mm -hmm. We're seeing um, really a lot of bills and laws that are being passed affecting the uh, ability for trans youth to receive life-saving gender-affirming care that is recommended by every major medical organization that we have. So it's very, it's a very large, um, you know, cultural war that that's that we're dealing with right now. And this year, particularly, just saw so many, um, so many bills introduced nationwide, um, really having a major effect on the community in general, the LGBT community, but really having a, a very big um, impact on the transgender community. I mean, I, you saw that play out here in Tennessee, right? Almost not concurrently, but very close timelines with the case that we've been discussing around the Adult Entertainment Act. Or, um, obviously, it was ruled against. But then you also had law that was passed about Tennessee's restricting gender affirming uh, gender affirming care, which which so far is, you know, it's, has not had any, uh, I guess, uh, it has not been overturned in any manner yet. So you had well, both both sides play out here in Tennessee. That's correct. That law was passed, but it doesn't go into effect until July the first. Okay. So there are challenge. There is a challenge to that law currently. Um, the ACLU of Tennessee and Lambda Legal um, filed a complaint, and the Department of Justice has at has also okay. um, joined in. So the it, it's always great when you have your federal government behind you. I know that mm -hmm. I think that I think marriage equality was the first time that we had, you know, the federal government of, in support of the plaintiffs in that role. But they also in this particular situation have done that. Now, last year, there were four trans youth gender affirming care bans passed and and two of those are enjoined currently. One of them was found unconstitutional. It, was the, it wasn't it was through the legislature. It was the, the governor who was involved. And the, the third one that has not been enjoined only impacts surgery. So they permit gender-affirming care for, for trans youth, which is typically not surgery-related. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. a lot of the, it's, there's a lot of misinformation yes. that has been shared. And it's, and I, I think that, it's a it's an area where most people don't have just a common understanding. Mm -hmm. So misinformation has just spread wildly. And it's just it seems like and this isn't and I guess this isn't new, but. Well, two things. So one, I feel like a lot of people's opinions are being informed on by outlying outliers, not the not the everyday, like you said, like most gender affirming care does not involve surgery. Um, so you hear well, about yeah, something. It actually yeah. it does. It does, Ryan. But it's it's not the when when they're using a focus on youth on trans. Yes. Yes. Right. 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 So that it's, would be you know, an exception. As yep, the, you're hearing a lot of stories being put out there, and they're based on like like you said, like exceptions, like outliers. Right. Um, so that's one. And the other one, and I, you won't be able to answer this. It's just an observation. But I really wonder. Like, does does everyday American citizen really are they as up in arms that uh, as conservative lawmakers would like you to believe, or or is this just being driven by a certain subset of of lawmakers that have this opinion? Um, you know, I'm just I guess putting something to a vote nationally is the only way to really figure that out. But I just don't get the opinion that I'm walking down the street and everybody has these, you know hardcore opinions about every single one of these things but but the way that the the i guess some some media outlets and some legislators would have you believe is that 
all of my constituents really think this is like the most important thing out there. Um, so there's not an answer to that. It's just an interesting yeah. observation. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, I do think though, that when we look at this issue, we're seeing that it's coming from um, some far right, typically Republican strategists, ultra conservatives. And, and there's a question over whether or not, I mean, when you understand what the process is, when you understand what um, the reality is, it's hard to be opposed. But I do think right. that an issue that has been identified as po possibly a key to regaining White mm -hmm. House. Um, it, it, it could be, we, we even saw this recently when, when President the former President Trump launched his re-election campaign. Um, he had a promise to punish doctors who provide gender-affirming care to minors, and he equated that with um, child sexual mutilation. So it's it's really just putting forward this concept that is, is not correct and mm -hmm. that it just has a life of its own. When we're talking about gender-affirming care for trans youth, and it is life-saving gender-affirming care, um, and as I said, recommend not not just recommended, endorsed, supported in, in, by all major medical associations. So we're talking about the American Medical Association, American Pediatric Association, psychological, sociological, um, endocrinology, uh, pediatric. Every across the board medical organization in the U.S. supports this care, and it's because it can be life saving. So if you have a a, a child who is identifying as a transgender individual, simply the first the first um, step of gender affirming care would just be uh, to allow that child to express themselves in the way that they feel is true to themselves. So it may be changing their dress. It may be a haircut or growing hair. It may be um, a name, using a name and pronouns that they identify with that can relieve, um, give them relief from gender dysphoria initially. So it's really a progressive. There's a team of medical experts involved. Parents are involved. So this is not like, you know, this idea of, you know, a nine-year-old walking on the street kid, yeah, into a clinic. Yeah. Right. Saying, Mom, I think I'm this. And she picks up the phone and schedules some surgery. That is right. absolutely it's this is a um, a long term care scenario where you mm -hmm. have multiple medical professionals involved um, when the child gets to a, a, a puberty stage there. There's a, a the second stage would be like a puberty blockers, which mm -hmm. are completely reversible. It, it basically presses pause for these children so that they don't go through puberty in the gender they don't identify with, which um, all the research shows can bring about just extreme gender dysphoria, depression, um, and extreme anxiety and suicidal ideation. And we have such a vulnerable community with the transgender community and then with the children especially. So I think that the whole concept of this of gender affirming care is really to help a child to get to the a place where they can make these informed decisions on their own as an adult, but to survive, to get there, and to have a quality of life in the, in, in the meantime. And I think that's where you see this is not a Republican or a Democrat issue. This isn't mm -hmm. conservative or liberal. What we saw when um, there were when when citizens were addressing the legislature here in Tennessee were parents parents of transgender children and where they fell on the political spectrum was just beside the point. What they mm -hmm. were doing was really desperately trying to get their children the medical care that that they need. And um and I I also I also feel like those parents are so brave and there are plenty of children who are in similar or same situations that don't have any parental support. And so to see these parents just really trying to share their stories and the turnaround that their child has gone through um, from being this sad and depressed and anxious child to receiving gender affirming care and having, you know, really a, a, a personality turnaround where they're mm -hmm. feeling hopeful and to not have that heard um, is heartbreaking. Yeah, uh, I, I recently I, I 
I sent a I sent a a note to a legislator in Louisiana. It was a conservative Republican legislator who had the deciding vote on gender ban, gender affirming care ban there, and and voted against it because he educated himself. He he was wow. talking about that even the testimony in the in the legislature, um, they they limited the experts that could talk about the care mm-hmm. to their experts and right. not 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 experts from all of these major medical organizations that support and then listened to parents of trans kids and um really felt that it would be so harm it would be harmful to children and that's where i see this juxtaposition with our um with our bills that are being introduced because on the one hand we're saying we're going to protect the children if you want to protect the children then following the the standard of care medical, yeah. right by all these major medical associations instead of substituting their judgment for the judgment of the folks that sit in you medical. agree with yeah yeah right and yeah. and then i also think there was a bill that was also introduced that had to do with education and um that that parents, in tennessee or louisiana this in tennessee okay. um a bill that would that identified, you know, parents as being the, having the um, constitutional right to determine the care and control of their children for medical care, education, et cetera, Mm -hmm. because it was talking about introducing concepts in school that were LGBT related and that if parents wanted to keep their children away from that or didn't want them to be exposed, but that didn't really make sense when we're then talking about taking that power away from parents, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when we're talking about receiving medical care for their own kids. So, right. the, you know, this protect the children, don't protect those children, though. You can't cherry um, pick. The, yeah. Right. And there is a yeah. lot of that that we see. So, so um, this makes me think, what are the, this might be sad. Um, what are those families in Tennessee now, as of, like you said, when that law you know, comes into effect in July 1st, what do those families in Tennessee have to do? Are they going to have to go to other states um, to re- to find this care? Because I think that is a similar thing that what we're seeing with abortion-related health care for, for women um, in Tennessee and other states is, yeah. you know, having to travel to other states. And then that opens up a whole other avenue of is if, if, if someone were, if an organization or an individual um, provides them transportation or to take them to another state or pays for them to go uh, gain access to that health, the health care in another state that opens them up to legal rep- ramifications. And so is the, are we headed in a similar direction for well, children that are looking great, for this care? It, it's a great observation. And, and, you know, one of the things that the Tennessee law does that, that is really uh, striking is that it it provides a a cause of action for any child who has received gender affirming care and wants to sue the the medical provider it gives them a 30-year statute to do so um it, it it includes some potentially it can it can impact the medical professional's license. We've seen here in Tennessee already a real chilling effect with with medical provision because mm-hmm. even though it hasn't gone into effect yet, there's a lot of providers that are that are already um, stopping providing that care to minors. Um, the, the other thing is that even when it goes into effect, now there's a grandfather, I guess you could call it clause, where if you're already on um, say puberty blockers that the, you would have until March of next year to titrate or wean off of it, which means that you're already, it's really kind of ending it as soon as the law goes into effect so that you're being brought down. Now, what mm-hmm. that would accomplish for someone who's on um, puberty blockers is that they would go through puberty, which mm-hmm. is exactly mm-hmm. what the point was to put them on the blocker until they could make such determination. And you know, another interesting thing, I'll just throw this out there to muddy it up a little bit more, <laughs> that we're seeing in some of these um, trans athlete cases, oh, where yeah. if the athlete has not gone through puberty, it's it it's an easier route to compete um, in the NCAA, Olympic, et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. But we're you, but then we're putting laws into effect that don't allow that to, to mm-hmm. take place. So it really is another where it. it oh, you're describing a whole other podcast that we. Could yes, it's a whole other podcast. But <laughs> yeah. but but what I am hearing from a lot of families, and not just Tennessee, but in a, a, you know a few states, Florida, Texas, that are really um, coming strongly down against transgender um, citizens, is relocating. Families mm-hmm. having to move to to the the health of their child. Mm-hmm. Where does this fit in? Um, making really hard hard decisions. Do I relocate? There are some states that are calling themselves. You know, they're putting laws into effect to say, "Come here, we'll mm-hmm. help. You, you can mm-hmm. come here and receive care." I think Minnesota is is saying like, "We are we are a place that's safe for you. Come to mm-hmm. us." I've seen um, Florida. I mean, Cal. California say, you know, we welcome people who, who, you know, need to be accepted. We're happy to accept you here. So we're seeing this, you know, kind of states split, but, but parents are being put in the incredibly difficult situation of here's where I work. Here's where my family is, my job, my roots, my everything. And do I, do I have to move in order mm-hmm. to protect my child? If, if I'm going to have to leave the state how frequently is it monthly? Um, is that going to be something that I could put me at risk? We've seen some of these statutes that, you know, call taking your child for gender affirming care child abuse, mm-hmm. and, and so it's really an incredibly challenging and and agonizing decision for so many families. What's the? I mean, the I, I hesitate to say what's the answer, but it does strike me as. Well, ed- education, educating people, the general public more about the issues obviously w- would be important. But other than that, it's just, I guess, voting for people that are informed and that will well, vote, think- in, vote in a in an educated manner, I guess, is the, the only route to change. Correct. Realizing the power that mm-hmm. we do when we elect our representatives, what the power right. is. That we them. Um, I do think for this law, we still have... What is this? This is a nine. Uh, we still ninth, have, yeah. yeah, we still have a few weeks to see whether or not the judge in the case that's um, challenging the the um, the gender affirming cares in middle the middle district of Tennessee, um, whether or not there will be an an injunction issued in that case, which would be great, you know, to mm-hmm. during mm-hmm. the pendency of that case to be able to put that law on hold like the judge like judge parker did here for Mm -hmm. the drive ban initially um before his final ruling but to be able to pause that i i I do think there's time right there's time but it but realizing the impact that has on healthcare providers right right you know i mean there's a scare tactic you know there's a real fear factor oh yeah yeah so um, ha- determining whether these laws, in fact, are going to be constitutional or not, I think is, right. is going to be a key for some. In- for if it's unconstitutional, then we can put that at least to rest. Right. There's a, there's not. It doesn't mean that the attacks end. And I think you made a good point about educating. I, I feel like for say marriage equality, I I feel like it was. As a tri- I feel like the allies, the supporters of, of LGBT, of gay and lesbian couples who wanted to marry meant so much to um, the Obergefell case because mm-hmm. there was a real support from the American citizenry at large. And so, but I think a lot of that came back to, I remember this from the, I, I, I turned, I was in my young 20s in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, and at that time, there was a real message of it that you know everything was still still um illegal it was still a crime to engage in same-sex intimate relationships Mm -hmm. and so there was a real call to action to come out you know that people had to know people who were gay in order to understand uh, that it wasn't the scary thing that they're just like everybody else they got up and went to work and had the same you know um general life as everyone else and so that was a scary thing, but there's a larger percentage of gay people in the in the population. And so folks got to see that's my teacher, my neighbor, my mm-hmm, child, mm-hmm. my cousin, my I mean, it was, we all had some connection 
to a person who was gay. And once you knew, then it kind of took away that boogeyman effect. Right. And I think I think that um, maybe because of the successes of the LGBT movement, where we got marriage equality, where Texas versus Lawrence in 2003 said, you know, that it's unconstitutional to say that you can't engage in intimate relations with a same in a same sex relationship. So I I was thinking about how prior to the Obergefell decision, um, well, I went back into the 80s, right, with the whole right. coming concept. And I think that it's this other, this unknown, this, this it, it's easy to be afraid of what you don't know or you don't understand. And I think that that's part of how coming out made such a difference because you weren't the boogeyman anymore. You know, the scary thing that we don't know about. Now it's people who you know, and there's more than you would have ever guessed that you knew. And then I think with Obergefell and marriage, um, you know, eight years later, it's the world hasn't, the sky hasn't fallen and the world hasn't, you know, had horrible outcomes from it. You just have people who are married like their their peer um, cisgender friends. And um, so there's been a real acceptance with that. And even with children, since it's a different, such a different generation, my generation, very few people had children, or if they did, it was typically where they were in a marriage and ended up getting divorced and had children as opposed to entering a relationship, a same-sex relationship. And now it's such a, um, it's such a um, normal or becoming more and more normal all of the time where it's a part of a dating relationship now, mm-hmm. same-sex. And then I think with Bostock, we had employment protections and that's still being kind of sorted out in the courts at how far that's going to go. But we know that you can't be fired and are otherwise treated uh, um, with discrimination based on your sexual orientation, gender identity. So there's been this really very positive forward momentum. And so this this situation now, I think, with transgender and drag and it's we're back to the boogeyman idea and Mm -hmm. something we don't know about and we don't understand or, you know, people in society. And so I do think it's. It's been weaponized in politically, which it shouldn't be, because, you know, whether a person is is gay or or lesbian or transgender or somewhere on the um, identity, the gender orientation identity spectrum, it has nothing to do with politics. You know, mm-hmm. so, so I do think that as these issues become clearer, there's just so much misinformation right now. And I think that's really what feeds the fire of fear. Right. You know, it's it's crazy because I think a lot of there's a lot of push for, I guess, omitting a lot of teaching of of certain things like this in schools. But really, that just seems like it would perpetuate the the fear. If you don't learn if you don't learn all of the correct information up front, then you just become an adult that doesn't know anything about it. So it's true. it's kind of a, it's a weird, it's a weird outlook to me to, to ban the teaching of certain things. There's so um, many contradictions. You're right, Ryan. Yeah. You have this idea, like if you, if you're not going to be educated, you can't understand, but we don't right. want you to be educated. And it's such a, I mean, you can look back. Um, so many things are um, repeat in history. Yes. This yeah. whole idea of banning books. And, you know, I taught a gender in the law class this last spring and, and, Students wrote papers and they were on various topics that were of interest to them, but one with the book bans. And it's just so strange to have in our, in, you know, 2023 that we're banning books or not right. even allowed to mention things. I mean, in some schools, children of same sex um, couples aren't even supposed to mention that they have two moms or two dads. <laughs> you know, it's really blocking yeah. out. And, and so I, it's a, um, it, it that's it's these contradictions. You need to be yes. educated, but you can't get educated. And then right. I see this even with transgender, right? It's like when you look at the sports, the athletics, Title IX, how that's going to play out. Well, there's there's this, you know, if it's pre-puberty and you didn't go through puberty, then it's it's um an easier route to take if you want to compete. But we're gonna ban any treatment so that you can't you know, you can't right. take walkers. So there's all right. of these real, you know, competing interests and, and contradictions throughout. 
Yep. I think you touched on one item that I was going to ask you about. So uh, with the, the title nine and the athletes and, and that whole realm. So that's one issue that I think is, it is cropping up more and more and that people could probably educate themselves more about. Are there any other things out there um, in the LGBTQ realm um, politically, legislatively, or just culturally that you think are going to come up and that people should kind of learn a little bit more about or, or that is on the, or on the horizon. Um, well, I, I do think title nine is going to be a big deal, right? That was supposed to come out in May or this month. Right. What not, I'm not even talking about the athlete because they split the, the department of education addressed them separately okay. in, their, in their title nine regulations. And so um, they were supposed to come out in May, June, but they've been backed up now to October and they're going to release them at the same time as they are with the transgender athletics. But I, from every indication that I have, what's going to happen with Title IX is that they will include sexual orientation and gender identity under discrimination based on sex. Right. And so that's going to cause, I, I'm not even, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of litigation. There already has started litigation and they haven't even released the, mm-hmm. the regulations. But that means that if you are a federal fund recipient, then you cannot discriminate based on sexual orientation, gender identity, if you're accepting federal funds. And that's going to impact schools. And so, you know, a lot of, well, not a lot, but there's some states that have even outlawed what, so you'll have federal state tensions and that'll Mm -hmm. be an issue that'll be coming up as well as how um, sports will be handled. And and, and that's going to be a little trickier, I think. And I think the Biden administration has taken some time to really kind of try to figure that out because Mm -hmm. You want to mix both inclusion and fairness. And so, you know, when you're looking at younger children playing sports, no one's competing for scholarships. Right. Um, if you're seven years old and you want to play, then play with the team that you identify with. And I think what they're trying to do is really um, consider the the issues that are being raised by by many about you know they're really kind of painting the picture like it's going to ruin women's sports and they won't have opportunities for scholarships it's misinformation again because you're yeah. talking about less than one percent of the population and then you're talking about a small percentage of that of that yeah competitive you know athletes but nonetheless i think that that that's something that they are considering and trying to figure out it's 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 a tough i think it's a tough place to to you know you've got one group that's going to be just completely saying we are we need to be included and be allowed this opportunity and we've seen courts rule um that have said yes that that's that across the board and i think that Biden's trying to thread a needle we'll see how that plays out mm-hmm. That's one issue that'll be coming up. And then um, religion, how religion and LGBT rights, we've got 303 Creative, which the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on in on December the 5th. And that's the case with the website designer, the woman from Colorado who wanted, who wants to design websites for weddings, but does not want to um, include same sex um, couples in, mm-hmm. in so she hasn't ha- she doesn't have the business but it's it's a preemptive move but okay. it, it conflicts directly with Colorado's non-discrimination laws so unlike mm. Tennessee Colorado has protections that they provide for their state citizens that uh, you know prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation gender identity so in that case the supreme court's going to be looking at whether or not it's a neutral law it's different than the cases that we heard from masterpiece cake um, right. Which, also you know, in Colorado. Right. Yeah. Correct. But in that case, it, it appeared that, well, there was some animus toward um, Mr. Smith. And so here we don't have that. So we'll see what the Supreme Court says, how they're going to rule. But it's going to start, you know, all of these areas where there's gray, you know, right. where we don't know how it's going to come out. So we'll we'll be learning that later this month, I believe. Yeah, that's an interesting one, because I haven't I haven't um, had that on my radar. So that'll that's a good one for. Mm-hmm. listeners to keep an eye on too sure. well great this has been awesome as always regina really it's interesting nice to talk with you well i appreciate you coming on and um yeah i'll try not to 
to bug you too much, but I think as especially the Title IX stuff comes to a conclusion, maybe we'll have a chance to talk again. So this is such Thank an this is such a moving area right now. Yes, that right. Even when I write, I have to go back and change all the time. Well, and, and like it's you know you've got state level stuff, and then it might go on appeal, and then you've got federal federal level items, and then there's just the broader cultural cultural impact and cultural areas too. So like you said, yeah, it, it keeps on moving. And I guess the state the state stuff could eventually you know reach the 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 federal level the Supreme Court too so you, it just keeps on going. Yep. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Alrighty.